you're listening to the Soil Talk podcast presented by Central Valley Ag. This is Keith Byerly, Precision Ag Manager at CBA, and I'm joined by Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead at CBA. This week on the Soil Talk podcast, we're going to start our conversation about potassium and all of the nuances and just how much about potassium that not only Tim and I don't know, but everybody doesn't know and understand about potassium. So I think with that, Tim, that's probably about as good of a segue as there is to get into the talk about potassium on. If there is a nutrient that we have learned that we know nothing about in the last 15 to 20 years, it might be potassium. Why I say nothing about, obviously I exaggerate, but this one might be one of the most uh most uh interesting wrapped up in an enigma confusing we don't know what we don't know about potassium sort of nutrients right now i couldn't agree more keith it's one of the ones that's kind of the biggest challenge to interpret well for the grower i'll normally start out with ph and phosphorus and i feel pretty comfortable with those But when I get to potassium and look at a guy's soil test and he's either really low or he's really high or maybe he's kind of about where I want him to be, I've got to think about it a little bit. And it kind of depends one thing on how much money I'm spending in other areas. Uh, And it kind of depends what his soil texture is. So I know if it's a sandy soil, I better pay a little bit more attention to it. If it's a soil with quite a bit of clay in it, there's probably more potassium there than what the soil test is showing me. But whether or not it'll come plant available, I have no idea. I just lack the confidence in that potassium soil test that I have with things like pH and phosphorus. So maybe that's where we start with potassium is why do we lack confidence in the soil test there? What I mean, there there are different methods between different labs, just like there are in virtually every nutrient out there. But really, we don't have a whole lot of consensus about potassium values and, and, and their accuracy and what they mean to production. Well, you know, we start with the land-grant universities and what they've developed because they're the ones who developed the test to start with. And when they go to see, is there a response to potassium fertilizer that's profitable, they had to get to some pretty low levels in the soil before they could say that, hey, we're consistently getting that response. Now, some of that work was done with lower yields, and and that kind of leads us to maybe uh, look at a little higher numbers than what the land-grants are doing But the bottom line is they had a hard time always getting a consistent response to potassium application at soil test levels that you and I would call low. And that's why their numbers a lot of times are a lot lower than ours are. And then we've had different soil tests come out. We've had that wet method that came out a few years ago. Um, I know Iowa State has really pushed that. And it goes back to we just lack the confidence that we have in, say, the phosphorus or pH test in the ammonium acetate method for potassium. Now, I don't like the wet method either. I don't find it all that useful in the soils in Nebraska or even in western Iowa, but I know Iowa State really likes it in that Des Moines area. So, you know, we've got multiple tests out there. We've got North Dakota State University coming back and saying the the appropriate level for potassium in the ammonium acetate-based extraction 
is this number, say 130 part per million or 150 part per million when your soil's got this kind of clay in it, but it's 200 part per million when your soil has this kind of clay in it. So they they vary it based off the kind of clay. So we've just got a lot of unknowns and different factors in there that we're not used to dealing with when it comes to like P and pH. The other thing I think that, that adds to the confusion is we look back at that research from the land grant universities and when they talked about not needing potassium and 60s and 70s and where we were at from a yield environment to where we're at today. Well, most of the other things, nitrogen, potassium or nitrogen, phosphorus, especially, it's a fairly linear thing. As yield goes up, the, the, the consumption stays fairly linear and predictable. That's not the case with potassium. As we've increased populations, increased yield, and, and really, I think also, just as much of it, changed the genetics of the corn, sp talking specifically about corn, changed the genetic profile of some of these plants and brought in different genetic lines. It's been a, it's not a linear line. It's an exponential line where things have totally changed. And it's more of a, more of a curve where it was flat at the bottom and then it went to a really steep tick up as we've gotten to 34, 36, 38,000 populations and yield goals that are in the 250s. And it's not just about the total consumption of potassium at the end of the year. It's about the daily consumption of potassium at certain growing periods and how fast that plant has to get it. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, as you go into higher populations, so a system where the plants have smaller root systems, and of course, we're talking about corn here, but we could talk about wheat or soybeans or anything. All of those plants have a lot of potassium in their tissue. So when you, when you do a leaf tissue sample, regardless of what you're looking at, corn, wheat, soybeans, alfalfa, whatever, Second to nitrogen is normally potassium. So the plant has to take up a tremendous amount of potassium. Now, normally when we talk about NPK, well, they're in that order because that's how likely they are to be yield limiting. You know, nitrogen is the one that shows up first. It's the biggest hammer on yield. But number two is phosphorus, even though there's much less phosphorus in the plant than there is potassium. So because we need so much potassium in that plant, again, second only to nitrogen, it makes it really important. And I think, like you said, as yields go up and populations in corn especially go up, we need more potassium out there. We've just got more biomatter out there. We need more potassium coming from that soil. And at the same time, we've shoved those corn plants closer together. They've got a smaller root system. They can't take it up as well as they used to. I used to say, you know, hey, potassium and phosphorus, those are both immobile nutrients in the soil. What we really do is just try to manage that long-term fertility. You don't really worry that much about timing. Well, now I'm back to, hey, maybe I do need to think more about timing and put some potassium out there mid-season so I can match that rapid uptake, kind of like nitrogen in, again, in corn, but all crops. As you've got rapid vegetative growth, you've got to take in a lot more potassium. A lot of times it's north of 10 pounds per acre per day. Well, that's a lot of potassium when you think about a fertilizer recommendation. So maybe instead of throwing it all up uh, ahead of season, maybe I need to save some back and put some in season. It's all questions I have, and I have more questions I have answers. And further on, uh, further compounding this is how that is used. I think that as we go back through the years and we look back at, at failures that we've had in crops 
and in hybrids and things like that through through years past. There's been a lot of times where we blamed hybrid or population when it was really a K deficiency that's a result of our hybrid choice and the way that that hybrid uses potassium to build that stock and build strength in that stock. Because that's really what potassium does for us as much as anything is builds healthy stocks that give us the pipeline to, to get nutrients up to the ear and get the sunlight where it needs to go and, and service those vessels. But at the same time, it's got to be a strong enough plant to hold everything up until we get there with the combine. And we blame pushing the population too high on green snap and we blame wind on things and all of this stuff. A lot of times it's that our daily demand by hybrid X is greater than our soil's ability to provide daily demand. And we have a deficiency, even though our best soil testing methods tell us that we have adequate potassium. Yeah, I would agree. So as we push up nitrogen rate, as we try to chase after yield, and we don't back that up with some potassium, I think we can have more what we call succulent which also means kind of weaker, not as much lignin in them stocks than what we would have if we could balance out that potassium and nitrogen. So I do think that nitrogen and potassium balance in the plant tissue test, that's something you really should look about look at a lot. If you've got high nitrogen, but you've got low potassium, you are kind of setting yourself up for maybe a problem with uh, the stock either pushing over or frankly going all the way over and breaking. One of the nice things for me as, as a soil fertility guy is when I'd go out and look at something that's got a lot of lodging, a lot of, of green snap in it, I could almost always point to the seed guy because everybody thinks it's a hybrid issue. So I would say, yes, it's definitely that guy's problem. Has nothing to do with soil fertility. My recommendations were correct. Your guy who recommended the hybrid, he was the guy off. I'd go after him. To that point, when we look at some of the stuff that seed companies do a tremendous amount of research that never makes it to the public eye. And one of those things that I know is out there, and and I shouldn't say never makes it to the public eye, but we look at one of our partners in Winfield here with what they do with their, their answer plots and their R7 tool. One of the things that they measure... I don't know if it's hundreds of hybrids a year, but it's tens and tens and tens of hybrids a year. They're measuring things like response to nitrogen, response to potassium, things like that. There's such a wide disparity in that response to potassium by genetic background of, of some of these hybrids that what is adequate for one isn't adequate for another. And, and that thing, and, and it goes back to it's really easy to point to it as a hybrid fault. But if you can get your hands on the data to understand that response to potassium before you get that plant out of the ground, you may understand that I have to fertilize this one different. I have to give it different nitrogen, different potassium needs in order for it to be successful. And while the failure is blamed on the hybrid, it's a management system failure. Right. And you've also got to look at weather events. So when you think about the environment itself, you know, uh, an, an environment that works great this year. So, you know, the first thing I want to do with all of the 
the uh, sugars I produce with photosynthesis is I want to build leaf areas so I can capture as much sunlight as possible so I can build more sugars and grow that plant up. And then as soon as we get switched over to the reproductive phase, I want all those sugars to go into grain development and grain fill. I want a big ear, lots of kernels on it, and I want to make those kernels as fat and as deep as I possibly can and continue to fill. And frankly, that's all I want all of those sugars to go into right up until the wind blows really hard. And then I want all of those sugars to go into lignin in that stock to keep that plant standing upright. But, you know, everything in that first case scenario, if I if the weather cooperates with me, I can grow tremendous yield. In that exact same scenario, when the weather doesn't cooperate, it's all laying on the ground. So there's some huge challenges there. One year things work out great and the next year they don't. And Again, we we need different things at different times, and it's not always the same year to year. So there's a lot of variability there besides the hybrid, besides the soil fertility, besides the sunlight and transpiration that that allow the plant to pull nutrients up through the root. um, It's what kind of weather events do we have? Yep. So speaking of weather, and since you were on a tangent telling a story, let's transition into one of our segments of talking about some of our favorite farm memories or farm stories. So, Tim... This week, it's your turn to, to kind of share with us something from the, the Mundorf past. So I, I admire that segue. So as you think about wind and wind blowing crop over, you think about Tim and how windy that guy can get. Exactly. So here's the story. So growing up in Southwest Iowa, um, I was the older of, of two boys, so got got stuck with a lot of the farm work and probably probably got responsibility thrown on me faster than I ever deserved it, especially as a teenager. And I had a cousin I was really good friends with that'd come out and work with us quite a bit. And this cousin, uh, Rob, and I were uh, helping with uh, silage harvest, I believe it was. And he's riding with me. So two teenage boys together in a tractor do not add to the responsibility or the ability ability to make good decisions, it definitely detracts from it. You'd think two people, two sets of eyes, two brains in there that you'd be able to make better decisions. It's definitely the opposite with teenage boys. You're going to make much worse decisions. So we pull up with the tractor and the wagon, the wagon's empty, and we just needed to get unhooked and move on to to grabbing another wagon somewhere else. And uh, we're yakking away and we throw the, the tractor, it's a 4430 deer into, into park, jump out, yank the pin out of the, the hitch to pull away and go grab the next wagon. Both of us run back to the tractor, fire it up, throw it in about fifth or sixth gear on that power shift, floor it, drop the clutch and take off. And a little while later, we look back and realize we hadn't disconnected the hydraulic line uh, to the dump wagon. And it's still following us, just pulled along by the much longer now hydraulic line. So we're doing about, you know, 10, 15 miles an hour across the uh, the farmyard with this wagon that's doing the same speed behind us. Of course, we see the wagon back there, realize we screwed up, slam on the brakes and, and just grind to a quick stop. And of course, the, the wagon smashes into the back of the three-point quick hitch and blows a hole in the wagon. So, yeah, that was our story of two teenage boys not always making the best decisions and then taking off from there. And I didn't end up going back to the farm, but my cousin goes back to the farm, ends up marrying a nice gal from uh, central Nebraska and goes back to her family farm and, and eventually takes over operations. He did make a point of saying he never mentioned that story to his father-in-law when he went back to go uh, work on the farm with his father-in-law and, and take over that family farm. 
And I'm sure that's exactly the way that the story got told to dad after it happened. I don't remember what the story was to dad. We probably pushed the wagon back somewhere to a corner and pretended like it didn't happen. But I know it did come back to haunt me and I ended up doing some of the rebuild work on that wagon. So, Keith, one thing I would think about is, and here's something I want us to, let's talk about how we manage potassium. So, soils I grew up with, I really look for a soil test level of around 200 part per million. And then as I go fine tune it from there, it's kind of a decision. You know, if I've got a lot of other things lined up well, my P and my K, or yeah, my phosphorus and my pH, I'll probably make an application of potassium even if I am in the area I want to be in or even a little higher um, and I'll also use plant tissue to kind of manage it from there also. But how do you look at things different? So, again, being out here in, in the central part of Nebraska, you've got a tale of two soils to talk about once again. For our sandy soils, you're managing to a part per million because we're never going to be able to afford to build those soils up to a 220 or 240 part per million basis on most of those soils. So, we're looking at a crop removal based strategy on a lot of those with a little bit extra to gently keep moving those soils forward and leaving them better five years down the road from from where we are today. On the heavier side of soils, you know, I'm looking at the same things. I'm looking at that 220, 240 part per million range as a definite cutoff for deficiency because we know that after 50 years of, of corn on corn or, or corn bean rotation out there, We've definitely brought down potassium levels from where they were in the 60s and 70s when the recommendation was no no application. We had a lot of threes and 400s then. We see a lot of 200s today. But beyond that, I think you have to move over into a little bit of that balance side too, looking at the base saturation on that potassium and making sure that we've got availability in the soil of that potassium. And for me, I go to 4% as that number. If I'm seeing a lot of, of samples coming in across that field that are less than 4% base saturation on potassium, to me, that's a pretty good indication that I need to supplement some crop removal out there to meet the peak demand during that V6 to, to VT timeframe of when that stock is really elongating quickly. And I would say I look at the part per million, and I agree, the sandy soils, I'll let them go maybe a little lower, maybe 160 part per million. Those heavy clay soils, I'll push a little harder, maybe 225 part per million. But 80% of my thinking and recommendation and making the decision of whether or not I need to apply potassium is based off part per million, and at most 20% is based off of saturation. I'm not a big believer in base saturation. I know there's a lot of guys who'll say, oh, you got to look at your base saturation first. I always say, no, I want to look at my part per million first. If it looks good, then my first thought is, okay, let's look at all my other nutrients and see how things are going. But if everything else looks good and my part per million looks good and I still got money left over, over, that I'm interested in spending on, on uh, fertility, then I'll look a little bit harder at that base saturation. But it's down there ways for me, unless it's way off. I mean, if I got 200 part per million of potassium and my base saturation is one and a half percent, then I might push a little harder. But if I'm getting close to three, I don't get too excited about the base saturation. I know you and I don't always agree. Base saturation never tells me how much to put on. It just may tell me that I want to put on some crop removal in an area where I'm lower than I expect. You know, it's not like if I see a base saturation of of 2.6 
and my part per million is 380, then I'm going to be wild about throwing some product onto that. But if I've got a 240 part per million test and a base saturation of 32, that's going to kick my recommendation into, hey, let's get 60 pounds of, of potassium out there for a crop removal supplemental thing to help bolster that soil. So what do you think about split application of potassium? I, for the most part, I tell guys potassium is not mobile in the soil. Put it on whenever you want to put it on. You know, with your dry program makes the most sense because, of course, potassium chlorides are our cheapest source. And that's the way I look at it for, you know, my average grower. But if a guy's really pushing yield, a lot of times I'll say, hey, one thing we could try is some in-season potassium. What, what do you think on that one? So I think in-season potassium definitely has its place. To me, it also comes into the product and what you're using in that scenario. You either need to use a really available product, something that's soluble and goes in easy, or you need to keep it in balance with sulfur and magnesium to make sure that you're you're not sending those balances out of whack. So there's certain products that I'm a lot more excited about using in season to meet that in season need, but I don't think there's any reason whatsoever that if if a guy's got a dual bin machine and they're going out there to put urea on, that's the perfect opportunity to supplement some potash out there and look at putting it on then versus November. Yeah, and you might think about uh, K-Mag instead of uh, potash. That way you get some sulfur out of it, and especially on a sandier soil, you get some magnesium out of it. Another time I've played with magnesium is, you know, kind of normal, say, 15 to 20 CEC soils, kind of a medium textured soil, but the tissue samples keep coming back low on mag. So I've used K-Mag to play with that. What are your thoughts on K-Mag? K-Mag is, is that product that I was thinking of that balances those things out because I know for a fact that there are times when potassium's not deficient, but putting on a magnesium source versus putting on K-Mag, there are, there are, there are gains to be had there by keeping the product going into it in balance and and knowing a lot, I, I've actually had the opportunity to go down to New Mexico and go through the ma- the mine where they they pull the langbanite out for the KMAG. So understand that product pretty well and understand why that balance works the way it does with a KMAG mineral versus something that might be manufactured as as kind of a, a complete prill, if you will. So I think there's a lot of things that that can be accomplished there by using the right product, but it still comes down to trying to, I think the the tough part with potassium is trying to predict when the right time to be not just doing it, but when the right hybrid, when the right season, when all the things are going to align in a, in a row that instead of of a you know a one to one or a two to one return on investment, you get that five to one return on investment because that does happen with potassium sometimes. It's out of the park. What do you think about potassium thiosol going through the pivot for an irrigated guy? Normal textured soil or some medium textured soil versus sand? Thoughts there? So again, with 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 a product like KTS or, or some of those things. I think you've got to look at timing again because the real advantage of a product like that is getting it onto that leaf surface and being able to pull it into the plant versus having once it goes down to the soil, it's potassium, right? So there are definitely some foliar advantages to to KTS, but you've got to wait for that crop to be big enough. And when you've got that leaf tissue there, you're already in that rapid uptake mode. So it's definitely got to play, and it's a great rescue treatment. If tissue test, 
if tissue tests are coming back and telling you I'm way out of whack or I'm seeing that striping on my plant, I need to do something right away. It's a great play. But I think if you're in a pattern where you know you've got low tests or you've got availability issues with your potassium, that a dry program and timing with that is a superior plan to the rescue of KTS. I think we've gone on about eight different directions with potassium, so I'd like to throw one more out there. Dr. Miller with uh, Colorado State, I know, has done some work with in-season potassium application. I believe he was using a uh, soluble uh, 0060 potassium chloride and was running that through a kind of a side dress coulter machine. And he was finding his correlation to when those applications gave yield increase to match up with the magnesium to potassium ratio in the plant leaf. And that one was just completely out there. And I don't think we've got any recommendations based off of it so far, but I think that one shows some promise of the ability to look at. It's kind of a combination of potassium, the balance of those two in the plant, and then also there's weather issues and whether or not you've had moisture or not. But that that ratio of mag to potassium in the corn leaf uh, might be a key piece to deciding whether or not there's response to in season. You got any thoughts on that one? So I, I don't know the particulars of that one well enough to dive into it, but I think it all ties this whole thing together for the day very neatly. And going back to that opening statement where we're learning how much we don't know about potassium, there is there's a, a ton of research that's yet to be had out there that's going to help us further understand how to put potassium to better work on our farms and for our crops. And today, it's not that we're doing anything wrong. It's not that we're doing anything right. We're doing it to the best of our abilities. And I don't think that we're playing outside of the the, the realms of, of reality today, but we have to keep our minds completely open right now to understand that potassium is a changing game, especially with the yields and the populations that we have nowadays. I think that's very well said, and we'll probably end it with that. So for Keith Byerly and Tim Mundorf, this is Soil Talk. Please come join us next week as we continue to go down that uh, road of nutrient management and discuss the different nutrients that are important to your plant and important to your yields. Thank you for joining us today on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CVA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cvacoop.com, and you can see our precision-focused blog videos every Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Tim Mundorf and Keith Byerly. <music>